Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. In our last episode, we discussed some of the perils that can accompany our desires for cleanliness, order, and understanding when those desires are taken to their extreme. But there's no doubt that understanding our underlying nature, building good habits, and creating a space we find beautiful and can live comfortably in is, generally speaking, a good thing. That's why I'm really looking forward to speaking with today's guest, many-time best-selling author, award-winning podcaster, and studier of happiness, good habits, and human nature, Gretchen Rubin. Her books, The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, Happier at Home, and The Happiness Project have already won her millions of fans. The Happiness Project alone spent two years on the New York Times bestseller list, while The Four Tendencies Quiz has been taken by over one million people. And her new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, is sure to make her many more. On her incredibly popular podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she unpacks subjects ranging from limiting beliefs to the fundamentals of habit change, with her sister Elizabeth Kraft in their distinctively funny, clear, and down-to-earth style. She's been interviewed by Oprah, walked arm-in-arm with the Dalai Lama, had her work written up in a medical journal, and been an answer on the game show Jeopardy. And before she was a self-help superstar, she was a graduate of Yale and Yale Law School, was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, and clerked for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Gretchen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so happy to be talking to you. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So I think it's it's fair to say that you've had something of a non-traditional path towards being a happiness expert. And you give a bit of an origin story for this in The Happiness Project. But for anyone who may not be so familiar with it, what led you to take what I have to imagine in the moment was a pretty huge step from going from clerking for a Supreme Court justice to really investigating and researching happiness? Well, it's interesting. That's actually two transitions. So what a lot of people don't realize is that, like many people, I was an overnight sensation after 10 years of hard work. Sure, yeah. So The Happiness Project was my fourth published book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's definitely the book where I think I entered people's minds kind of in a more more general way. But I had made the switch from uh, being a lawyer to being a writer many years before. Mm -hmm. And that's, I got the idea when I was clerking for Justice O'Connor. I was, I was out on my lunch break and I had the idea for the book that eventually did become my first book. Mm -hmm. And um, so I made that transition. And then I was just finishing up my biography of JFK. And at the end of a book, you sort of, as a writer, have a little bit of kind of open time because your job with it is done and now it's in other people's hands. And so you have a little, like sort of a little bit of open space. And that's when I was in a city bus in the pouring rain. And I thought, you know, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. And I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or if I could be happier. Mm. And as often happens to me, even to this day, I sort of just like all of a sudden became really preoccupied with one subject, ran to the library, got a giant stack of books and started researching happiness. At first it was just for me, it was just for me to work on my own happiness, but I realized it was such a rich, fascinating subject that soon I decided to write a book about it. And indeed, I've written many books about it. Um, Mm. It's such an interesting subject to me that I have never left it um, since that day, like more than 10 years ago now. What were your first three books about? So my first book was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, Mm -hmm. A User's Guide. It's like this weird, dark user's guide. It's kind of, but it was really good preparation for the happiness project because it's like the anti-happiness project. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill. And then I wrote one of JFK. And I also wrote kind of a strange little art book called Profane Waste, which is all about people's relationship with their possessions. So Mm. I guess the happiness project was my fifth book. I just realized that. 
But really, all my books are about human nature. That's my subject. Everything that I do, like Winston Churchill, like just such a gigantic figure, you can see human nature so much more clearly. So to me, all my books feel very tied together, but I can see that from the outside, the happiness ones look like a separate category from the ones that went before. Right. In your book, The Happiness Project, you explore many different methods, many different approaches. Just to kind of summarize it, was there a a takeaway, a key takeaway at the heart of it all that really stands out for you? So that if you had one thing to say, if you would, from The Happiness Project uh, that you could communicate with people, what would be that one most important thing? I absolutely know what that is. And it's something that over time, and as I've done more and more, it only becomes more and more clear to me. Mm. And that is, there is no magic one size fits all solution. There's no best Mm. way. There's no one right way. It's whatever works for you. In some ways, we're very much like other people, but the differences are very important. And so to think that someone else can decide for you what your values are, what your interests are, do you like to exercise in the morning or in the afternoon? You know, sometimes people are like, well, this is the best way. Mm-hmm. If you want to work on your PhD thesis, you have to get up and do that 7, 7 a.m. before you check your email. It's like, maybe, uh-huh. maybe, or maybe you're the kind of person who likes to start working at 11 at night. Mm-hmm. I know people like that too. So it's really this idea that we can only build a happy life on the foundation of our own nature. Yeah, I think that's that's a really fair observation. And it kind of gets maybe a little bit to one of the defining blog posts for me on your website, which is about this kind of responses to classic happiness theories that you profoundly disagree with. To Mm. give you one of those, which I I really enjoyed, it's from Eric Hoffer, I believe. It's the search for happiness as one of the chief sources of unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And there's another pretty well-known quote about happiness from author Edith Wharton, which is, if only we'd stop trying to be happy, we'd have a pretty good time. Yes. And I think that that's kind of a classic critique of the sort of happiness literature. A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm not sure if I totally agree with it or not, but it is kind of out there in the ether. So if there is somebody who's kind of listening to this right now going sort of, man, I was really feeling good this morning before I started asking myself if I was happy or not, what would sort of your reply to them be? I just don't think it happens that much. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a theoretical problem. <laughs> um, I think it's the kind of thing where people sort of say, everybody's so worried about being happy that it's like bringing them down. I'm like, I don't run into that in life. Sure. Yeah. What I run into is people never think about it at all. They're like mm-hmm. I was. They're so preoccupied with like getting through their to-do list and managing their calendar and kind of like thinking about what's going on right now that it's very hard to step back and think about, well, could I be happier? What are the kinds of things that I would do if I wanted to make my life happier? I think that's a much bigger issue for most people. I think the idea that people are sort of like overly focused on it is is not really, I, I don't see that to be something mm-hmm. that actually stands in the way of most people's happiness. Now, there are some people who are so anxious that, you know, they they will be like, my life should be different. That's really more like about social comparison. You know, like I should have this person's life. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, I'm so worried about my own happiness. I'm thinking so much about how I can build strong relationships. It's bringing me down. I don't see that as a, pro- I, I just don't think it's a real problem. I just don't see it. Do you have any kind of sense of what it was inside you that led you to step back? Because you were involved at a very high level of success, Yale Law School, the life you were leading. And yet something in you, whether it was JFK or Winston Churchill or these different takes on success, which are really interesting, I didn't know about those. What was it inside you, do you think, maybe rooted in your own deep nature as a child that led you to step back in this radical way? I think there were sort of two two things in my mind at the same time. One was this feeling that I didn't appreciate my life enough, that I had every aspect of a happy life 
you know, I was living the dream, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. and I just didn't take the time to appreciate it enough and to really, really remember to be grateful. And I knew that, but it was very hard. It's one thing to acknowledge that. It's another thing to make it real in your life that you yeah. really are going to truly feel the happiness that you have. You know, it's so easy only later when something happens, you think, oh, how happy I was then, you know, so I really wanted to focus on that. And then also I had this feeling of like, one day I would grow up. One day all these things would be fixed or they'd work themselves out or I would sort of grow into myself and kind of overcome my limitations and my fears and my, you know, my petty grievances and all this stuff. But, you know, in that moment, I was like, come on, you know, this isn't going to get fixed unless I fix it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm a grown up now. It's not like, oh, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, maybe I'll maybe I'll be better at drawing when I'm a little bit older. And sometimes you, are, you really are. You really do get better at drawing. But I was a full-fledged adult at that point. Like if I wanted to do a better job of like staying in touch with my friends, that wasn't going to happen just without me deciding that I wanted mm -hmm. to make that real in my life. And I knew that. I, the minute I stopped to think about it, I recognized that that, that was the case. It's interesting. I've, I've seen in my own life and in the lives of many other people that uh, when people make a transformational leap, there's a shift, there's a frame shift, if you will. It's very often either when things are going really badly or really well, including the really well category in which someone looks around and goes, wow, is this it? Yeah. And then it leads uh -huh. to the kind of profound inquiry that you've engaged. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. I think people are often looking for that. They like to be kind of shaken up or they, and which is why I think things like New Year's resolutions or your birthday or an important, you know, life milestone can be helpful because I think we do sort of feel like we should do that work. We should take a minute and think about transcendent values. And, and we need something to act as a catalyst for that because you're right. Like sometimes it happens, especially like if something, everything's going wrong, you sort of can't help it sometimes. But it's helpful when something, on the Happier podcast, which you mentioned, we did a thing for Labor Day. And we were like, just like Valentine's Day is a day to think about your sweetheart. Just like mm. Year's Day is a day to think about yourself. Just the way Mother's and Father's Day is a day to think about your parents. Use Labor Day as a way to think about your work life. Mm. Is your work life what you want it to be? Could you have more happiness, more satisfaction? Should you be pushing yourself more? Do you need to make a big change? Is there a problem that you could fix? Is there a problem you can't fix? Like, Use this as a catalyst for self-reflection because otherwise, you know, we all know it's so easy for years to go by and you don't even stop to think about what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of the podcast and speaking of resolutions of various kinds, you recently went through a process of reviewing your last year's resolutions and then setting new ones for the new year. Yes. With regards to those habits of various kinds, whether they be resolutions or otherwise, I have to imagine that you've talked to a lot of people over your life about their habits and their resolutions and through your work and yes. all of that good <laughs> stuff. Have you seen a common trait or common traits among the people who are more successful with keeping these resolutions as opposed to those who are not? Yes. And there's sort of the gigantic answer, which has to go with the four tendencies framework, which mm -hmm. is that personality framework that I came up with that goes right to like people's success with New Year's resolutions mm -hmm. and such things. But then the short answer is people who set up a resolution in the way that's right for them are much more effective. And that a lot of times when people are really frustrated and feel like, oh, I have no willpower, or I can never keep my promises to myself or like, you know, what's wrong with me? Everybody else can do this. I can't. What, you know, there's something wrong. It's because you haven't set it up in the way that's right for you. Mm. And so I think that's the problem is, again, it goes to this one size fits all solution where it's like people are like, oh, everybody says that if I want to exercise regularly, I should work out with a trainer. 
I will sign up with a trainer, but now I never go. Yeah, totally. And I'm like, okay, well, I could, I could predict that about you mm. because mm-hmm. you're not the kind of person who benefits from working out with a trainer. But it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's just that it's not the right way for you to achieve that particular aim. But there's a lot of ways you could achieve the aim of like getting more exercise. Let's find the way that works for you. And then it'll work out much better. Well, let's build on that. You're getting into the four tendencies, a lot of really interesting work. Could you offer a quick summary of that? And then we can dive into some of it. Yes. And you mentioned the quiz. You can take the quiz at quiz.gretchenrubin.com if you want. But a lot of times people don't even really need to take the quiz. Like I'll describe it and people, they know what they are pretty quickly, but you can take a quiz if you like a quiz. So I took the sounds- quiz. I just oh, took did? the quiz this morning. I took the quiz as and, well. Yeah. Uh, so oh I'll gosh, tell you more. You okay, I'm going to describe them all and then you can do the big reveal. Right, Ooh, okay. I cannot wait. Okay. <laughs> so what this looks at is a very, very narrow aspect of your personality, but it's a very significant aspect. And that's how you respond to expectations. Mm-hmm. And we all face two kinds of expectations. Outer expectations, which is things like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then inner expectations, my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to get back into meditating. So depending on how you respond to outer and inner, you're either an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Mm. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. So they meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do it if they think it makes sense. So they don't like anything arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. They're making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they'll do it no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. Mm -hmm. And I got my insight into this when I talked to a friend of mine who said, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Mm. Well, (laughs) when she had the team and the coach expecting her to show up, no problem. But when she's just trying to go on her own, it's a struggle. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they choose to do. They can do anything they want to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. So they don't do something like sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturdays because they don't know what they want to do at at 10 a.m. on Saturday. And just the idea that someone's expecting them to show up just like annoys them. So those are the four. So if I get it right, let me just say it back. Uh, I tend to think in terms of a two by two matrix, which probably says something about my type of personality. But you know what it is, really? It's four overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. Yeah. It's the proper visualization. Right. It's the the one that captures the interrelationship. Yeah. So we have outer expectations, inner expectations, comply, not comply, basically. Mm -hmm. And so if I get it right, then the question is, why did you choose the word expectations and not words like values or goals or aims? Because that's what you're really getting at, I think. Well, I don't think so, because people often have values. You know, like my friend who was the obliger who wasn't running, she, she had tremendous value mm. in exercise and she was motivated to exercise, but it, it, that didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter that she was motivated. It didn't matter that it was a value because it had to do with an outer expectation. If she said a friend, oh, I'll meet you at the reservoir at 7 a.m. and I'll go with you, she would not have. So it wasn't about the motivation. It's really about what is being expected of you and also what you're expecting of yourself. 
I tried and tried to come up with another word because I just think that word is very dry and boring and kind of abstract. And I love concrete, vivid words, but I couldn't think of anything that really, it's, it's really an expectation. It's not even, I never, I try never to use the word motivation, which I think is extremely confusing. Hmm. Do you think of this as a standard or a should? Maybe a should, you should do it, but then a should is a value judgment and an expectation is just, I'm just expecting it. It's just something that's expected. Yeah, but should is probably the closest. So to kind of dive into it, it seemed to me when I looked at that framework and went through it myself, in a way, it's really about autonomy and freedom. In other words, does a person have a fundamental freedom in relationship to standards, goals, aims, shoulds, rules? And second, are they able to be at choice about whether they're going to comply with them or pursue them, no matter what is happening from the outside in or from the inside out? That's kind of how it really, really struck me as an inquiry into autonomy in a really, really deep kind of way. So I wonder what you thought about that. In other words, someone who, let's say, is must rebel against external expectations lacks autonomy. Someone who has to comply with their internal shoulds lacks autonomy. But someone who can freely decide which of the rules or standards or values or aims or goals are really most beneficial, skillful means, in other words, that person so is now I'm going I'm I'm to yeah. guess what your tendency is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is your tendency questioner? No, I'm an upholder. Uh, You're I, an upholder. I find it really easy. Once I clarify for myself, it's something. But see, it's interesting that you say that because other tendencies think that we don't seem free. I'm an upholder too. Yeah. They think we don't seem free. We, I feel tremendously free. Exactly. And you feel That's free. That's what's so interesting Others to me look about at your us work. And they say, yeah. they're, look how trapped they are. Look oh, how totally. blind they are. Your look work. how chained, look how rigid they are. But we don't feel that way. We feel free. Totally. Right? That's what's so interesting, the paradox of your work. It looks like it's hyper-conscientious, hyper kind of, you know, sort of like top-down and executive. And yet yeah. what I really see in it is this exploration of freedom. In other words, how do we move from deliberate control to a kind of giving over to and being lived by the best in ourselves habitually? That's the fundamental process I see you engaging. But I think that that freedom looks different for different people. Sure, yeah. You know, and that and that what feels free to one person might not feel. I literally had a rebel. I was describing what I was doing and the rebel stepped back from me, like literally, like <laughs> unconsciously because it was so loathsome. Totally to them to think about what I was doing. Like uh, like writing a book about habits, they were like, that just sounds dreadful. Why would anybody want to build a life on habits? And I'm like, if I could live the life of a Benedictine monk, I would. That to me sounds so <laughs> delicious. And so, so I think you're right that it's about freedom, but I think partly it's like, I tried to, when I came up with this, I tried to get as far away from any kind of value judgment as I mm. possibly could, because from the different perspectives of the different tendencies, things look very different. And so I think the power of it can come from saying, you see the world in a different way from me. You think spontaneity is important. I don't think spontaneity is important. So the way your perfect day would be would be different from my perfect day. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to say like, I'm right, you're wrong, or you're right, I'm wrong. Let's just say like, well, how do we work it out so that we can both be happy? Rather than trying to understand like, well, really, this is the best one mm -hmm. because of X, Y, Z thing. Because there are many arguments for why each of these is the best. And there's arguments for why each of these is the worst. Because they're just like, there's pros and cons. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you know, as an upholder, there, we don't, there aren't many upholders. Mm. We're a small group. So you and I are both upholders. Okay, what are you? What are you? 
<laughs> well, I I am a questioner, so I thought it was great you that you mentioned that for my dad there because okay. I was I was shirking in the corner, of course. And I think that people who knew me probably would have been able to guess that. And I like being a questioner. So in this framework, a questioner is somebody who resists outer expectations but meets their inner ones, as you very skillfully described. And I think that you gave their tagline as "I do what I think is best according to my judgment. If it doesn't、yes. make sense, I won't do it." Which, again, for me, if anyone knows me, sounds pretty right on. Yeah. And I actually kind of like being a questioner. I'm I'm very happy in my questionerhood. But I'm sort of wondering, what if I didn't? What if I wanted to change my underlying temperament? What if I really said to myself, "Wow, I think this way of being is really bringing me a lot of unhappiness for whatever reason. It's making it really challenging for me to fulfill other people's expectations of me. I I, I want to make other people happy fundamentally, even if I think they're sometimes kind of silly out there in the world. So I want to sort of move that underlying temperament. Do you think that it's possible for somebody to do that? And if so, how would they go about it? Well, you know, this is the question of like, can you change your fundamental nature? Because、yeah, I think、bit. this is hardwired into you, and、mm. I, my view is no. Okay, it's like I, I think it's very hard to change your fundamental nature、mm-hmm. if it's even possible. But the fact is, if you have aims that you are not reaching,、mm-hmm. it's very easy to work within your tendency and to like figure out how to solve a problem. That's easy and quick and can get you where you want to go. You don't need to change your fundamental nature. You just have to fix some problems.、Mm. So, for instance, what you point out is a lot of times questioners have a problem with this, like. I'm expected to do kind of stupid or inefficient or time-wasting things, <laughs> and then I get in trouble with people because I'm like, "Why am I going to do your、It's、stupid, inefficient, time-wasting?" Happened、thing? every once in a while, that's、okay. for sure. So what questioners can do is they can go to the second order of reason.、Hmm. They don't like to do this, but they can't. And so you say things like, "I talked to a medical student. He's like, 'I don't like doing these lab reports. It's a big waste of my time,、mm-hmm. but I will do them because I know that to get the recommendations that I need, yeah, sure, I need to earn the respect of my professor.'" And so I'm going to do it because that's how I earn the respect of my professor. I'm not doing it, like, or I'm going to take the standardized test, not because I think it's a good use of my time or a true measure of my intelligence, but I want to get a scholarship for college,、mm-hmm. and this is how you get the scholarship. So, so the that- outer expectation becomes an inner one, effectively. Right, because、yeah. you're coming with your own reason for doing it. Because、mm-hmm. you can argue all you want with that professor about how this assignment is stupid. And you're going to be seen as disrespectful, undermining of authority. You're、yeah. going to have those problems, but you can go to the second order. So that's what. Another thing where questioners often get frustrated with themselves is they can get analysis paralysis. This is when their desire for perfect information makes it hard for them to make a decision or move forward.、Hmm. Well, again, once you know you're a questioner and you're like, okay, this is a thing questioners have.、Mm-hmm. What do I do about it? Well, then there's a lot of solutions. You don't need to not be a questioner. You just need to be like, okay, what do other questioners do when they face this very common problem? They do this. They do this. They do this. I'll try that. Probably it'll work for me, and so it, you don't need to change. You just need to set things up so you get where you want to go. <laughs> Makes total sense. Now, at at some point, nobody wants to do something that's dumb waste of their time. At certain point, everyone's going to like all these. At some point, everyone's a rebel. At some point, everyone's an obliger. At some point,、oh. you know, we all have a little bit of this. It's like, what's your go-to thing?、Mm-hmm. That's very clarifying, and and to me, there's a lot about this. The one helps people get to know themselves better,、mm-hmm. and also. Can appreciate differences and tolerate differences, just like、yeah. you said earlier. It doesn't become、yeah. such a necessary conflict between oneself and one's spouse. You just go, "Oh, I'm this kind of a person. You're that sort、yes. of a person. Now, how do we work this out?" Absolutely, and I think that because a lot, and it also makes it more impersonal. Yeah, because it's not about our relationship. It's not how you view me or I view you or how we treat each other. It's just like、oh, this is a thing. Yeah, and sometimes you're just like,、oh, you know, it's annoying that it's a thing. Like I don't like dealing with it, but I don't have to take it personally, and we、right. can just work it out. It kind of gives us a vocabulary where it's not so emotionally charged. Yeah, 
One thing I thought about a lot is, as a psychologist is, why are there these fundamental differences that seem largely innate and or we tend to fall into certain patterns, even with socialization? And I think it's a lot because uh, diversity was adaptive in the human tribe. In other words, temperamental diversity, variation, having multiple types, obligers and rebels and yes. questioners and other forms of temperamental diversity was really useful because bands of roughly 50 during hunter-gatherer times who had a, a diversity of temperament could outcompete bands that were, let's say, entirely obligers or entirely comprised of rebels. And to me, that's, a, you know, what do you think about that? I think that's absolutely true. And you see that in the workplace because the problem with like a hiring team is that, of course, people who are of your same tendency make sense to you. Mm -hmm. Like you understand the way they think and the way they approach problems. And But if you have a whole team of questioners, they're gonna get things wildly wrong for <laughs> anyone who's not a questioner. Like if you're designing, let's say you're designing a curriculum or you're designing an app and you're thinking, okay, how do we get people to do this health monitoring app? Well, you get a bunch of obligers in a room, they're gonna have a very different view. And so you need that diversity because you need people, like everybody needs questioners who are like, why are we doing it this way anyway? Mm -hmm. This is all, like, why are you wasting our time? Yeah, they, the corporate told us to do it this way. This is the way we've always done it, but that's totally unacceptable. That's great for everyone. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you need an upholder who's just like, you know what? This is happening. You don't need to watch over my shoulder. Just tell me what to do. I'm going to go off and do it. That's great. Obligers, the person is going to come through for you. Mm -hmm. They are the ones that are going to make it happen for you. They are the rock of the world. And the rebels Loyalty. are the ones that are like, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. I'm going to go off and do something totally different. I'm going to blow this up. I don't care what you think. It can be hugely helpful. It can be energizing. It can like help everybody see everything in a different way. Mm -hmm. Do I want to work with an entire team of rebels? No, I don't. And I don't think they do either. <laughs> you know, um, But you, as you say, you need that diversity because yeah. everyone's bringing something different. Yeah. And we need to be conscious of that because it's very easy to be attracted to the people who think the way you think mm -hmm. and respond the way you respond even if that's not going to be the best overall result for a team. Yeah, that's great. If we could, now let's move on to another one of your excellent books, Better Than Before, uh, yeah. in which you talk about building positive habits. Can you kind of summarize that material with some uh, helpful hints yes. for those who might have a, some difficulty there? <laughs> yes. So, you know, habits are like the invisible architecture of everyday life. About 40% of our daily existence is shaped by habits. So, you know, they matter. And so what I do in Better Than Before is I identify the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. Um, and sometimes people are like, 21's too many. Like, I can't, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> Give me four. Give me the big four. Oh, yeah. But the, but the reason why it's good that they're 21 is some work very well for some people and don't work at all for other people. Or some are kind of available to us at certain times of our lives, but they're not available to us always. And so you really want to know What's, what your options are. And if there's an important habit that you want to change, like let's say you want to exercise more. That's a habit many people want. It tends to be a somewhat challenging habit to form. You might want to think about five, six, seven habit strategies that you could use simultaneously, which is actually much easier than it sounds. That sounds like super cumbersome, but it's actually not that hard. You know, so that you give yourself the best chance to cement it into place. And so what I wanted to do was to show people everything that they could think about so that you could be like, oh, this works for me. I've had good luck with this. Oh, this never works mm -hmm. for me. When have I succeeded in the past? What are my options? Can you name and a what few are the of pitfalls? them? I went through the list and I thought it was excellent, actually. So oh, I wonder if you could oh, name good. a few for people. So the, the ones that, the two that are most um, kind of universal for everyone are the paired uh, strategies of convenience and inconvenience. And there mm -hmm. is hilarious research showing 
If something's even slightly more convenient, we're far more likely to do it. And if it's slightly inconvenient, we're less likely to do it. So you can use this to your advantage. So I've heard of people who not only, you know, that you always hear the advice, like lay out your gym clothes the night before. I have spoken to many people who literally wear their gym clothes to bed. So they don't even change their clothes. Like they're rushing for the gym. That's really convenient. Yeah. It's super convenient. It's like, if that's what it takes, man, you do it. So convenient, same thing, make it inconvenient. So a lot of times people want to spend time away from their devices, but they make the mistake of they just leave it on, on the kitchen counter. They're like, oh, I don't want to check my phone between 6 and 9 p.m. That's family time, but it's here on the counter. So, ah, uh, you know, it's like, how do you resist? So put it on a high shelf in an out of the way coat closet and shut the door. And so if you are sweating and trembling because you need your phone, you can't go get it or turn it off. So you have to actually let it reboot and log in and everything, make it inconvenient. Hmm. Same thing like if you are an impulse shopper, one thing you can do is delete all your accounts so that you have to shop as a guest every time. Hmm. It's just a little bit more inconvenient. Is it super inconvenient? It's not super inconvenient, but is it enough to like stop you from impulse shopping? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. many people find just that little bit of extra grit makes them. So, so th those are two strategies that work for just about everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it seems to me that there's this real theme that runs through your work, whether it's better than before or your new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, or honestly, even the, the structure of the tendencies of various kinds, where there's this theme of consistency and planning and order and clarity and organization. And, and again, as we kind of talked about before, really sort of top-down executive control of various kinds. And you were speaking very eloquently earlier about the need for different strategies for different people, and this isn't kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. I think there might be a certain kind of person, perhaps a rebel, who would sort of look at the structure that you're working within here and say, wow, but where's the room for all of the not that? You know, where's the room for fun or where's the room for creativity or where's the room for spontaneity? So I have kind of a, a two-part question here. The, the first part is sort of what would you say to that person? And then the second part is where are the places inside of your life individually where you create the room for all of that? Mm. Um, well, actually, in, in Outer Order, Inner Calm, I thought about exactly that problem. Exactly. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. you put your finger right on it. And so part of it is like, well, what if you are a rebel and mm -hmm. you don't like, you don't want to get up at 10 a.m. and clean clutter? Like, what do you do? So I tried to include a lot of, tried to, and I acknowledge the fact this might not, you know, there's a lot of different ways. Like some people want to do, like they want to spend all day Saturday tackling the garage and it's like they want to work for 14 hours and they want to sprint toward it and it's this huge, immense effort and they love it. And then some people want to do like one shelf of a medicine cabinet a day. Mm -hmm. like they just want to make small incremental changes. Both can work. Same thing with, like for rebels, a lot of times rebels want to do something when they feel like it. It's mm -hmm. like, you feel like doing it now? It's midnight on a Tuesday and you feel like tackling the garage? You should just go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. That's how rebels do their best work. They do it when they feel like doing it. Don't get in their way. Don't try to tell them it's more inefficient to wait. Let them do it when they want to in their own way. And for a rebel, you don't tell a rebel, and a rebel shouldn't, what isn't benefited from saying to themselves, I should do this. I promised I would do this. People are coming over. I have to worry about what they're thinking. No, a rebel thinks, I like it this way. Mm -hmm. I feel hemmed in by stuff. I like it when everything's orderly. That's what I want. And so I feel like doing the thing that's going to get me there. Yeah. You know, so there's ways that you can achieve an aim by working with what appeals to your personality, to your tendency, different aspects of how people are different from each other. So I really tried to take that into account, which is why the book has just like tons and tons of ideas. And it's like, 
this isn't a program that you follow. Mm -hmm. This is like a menu that you pick the ones that that sound the most intriguing Mm -hmm. and then off to do those because, you know, the idea is like you're reading it and then you're like, I can't stand anymore. I got to jump out of my seat and go clear some clutter. So I'm just trying to give lots of ideas, lots of approaches because there's really no one way. We've been doing a whole series recently for us and I about (laughs) who am I? Or mm. I sometimes think of it jokingly internally, what's wrong with me? But anyway, so we've been exploring <laughs> psychopathologies of different kinds and, and very mild versions of what could be psychopathological, like a major anxiety disorder. So I yeah. joke, uh, I'm sure I have at least one of the 10 genes for OCD. I'm not sure they're exactly 10, but I think my dad had at least three or four of them. And mm. um, so I wonder if there's what your comment would be about the possibility or the risk that the focus that does seem to run through much of what you you offer, uh, which is really valuable, there's still a focus on orderliness, conscientiousness, control, deliberate, top-down, executive regulation, and so forth. Yes. What's the possibility of a little bit of that going way too far, especially for people like me who are very vulnerable to having to make their papers perfectly right-angled on the tabletop? <laughs> yes. I've seen this happen once or twice. Yes. And you're exactly right. And what you're seeing in my work is that I'm an upholder. And, <laughs> and I didn't know it until I wrote The Four Tendencies, but everything that I do is infused with the values and the perspective as an up- upholder. Mm-hmm. And I try to offset it and I try to think, you know, mm-hmm. but in the end, like I'm writing from that perspective. And that's a very idiosyncratic perspective. And so, and it's funny because when I read a lot of other books by people who are writing about sort of productivity and, you know, self-realization, things like that, I'm like, you're an upholder. So like, you got to take that into account. But what you're also talking about is is tightening. Mm -hmm. So tightening is when an expectation tightens on an upholder. So a lot of times with the other tendencies, an expectation will be announced. Like you're going to cut back on sugar. You're going to exercise regularly. You're going to keep your office neat. And over time, those kind of loosen up. And people are often sort of exasperated with themselves because they're like, "Eh, I'm just not doing a good job exercising or whatever. What can happen to upholders is tightening. And this is when the rules get tighter and tighter and tighter. Now, sometimes this can be okay. Like I'm one of these crazy low carb people that you read about. I read a book called Why We Get Fat by Gary Tobbs. Overnight, I changed everything about the way that I ate. (laughs) And when I started, I was pretty strict. Mm -hmm. But over time, I've become much more strict. Hmm. It's tightened on me. And I felt the tightening happen. Hmm. And it's very important to be aware of this because as you say, upholders can have this kind of overly rigid you know, they just get too focused on it. For instance, I have a friend who is an upholder and he said that his girlfriend was really trying to get him to use an app for budgeting Mm. where you would really track all your spending. He's like, I I won't use that app Mm. because I know it will click into me and I will spend so much time exactly tracking every penny that I spend that it really could crowd out other things that are more important. It could kind of really not be good for me. And by the way, he didn't have a trouble with spending. You know, sometimes people argue that upholders should do things, but upholders don't really have trouble with certain kinds of things or they have less trouble. We need to watch out not to get choked by our own expectations. It kind of goes to the question of how can people use the development of habit and a greater awareness of how to bring order and Mm. and to their lives? How can they use that in the service of freedom and autonomy? Well, I think, I think it's huge. And I think habits have a huge role to play because they get us, habits are the, or put us on autopilot. When something's a habit, we don't have to make decisions. We don't have to use self-control or willpower. Something just happens. And like, think about brushing your teeth. 
you don't wake up in the morning and say things to yourself like, I've been so good about brushing my teeth. I think I deserve a day off. Or I ought to be so good brushing my teeth starting on January 1st. It doesn't matter if I don't brush my teeth for the rest of, of the rest of December or given the day I've had, I shouldn't have to brush my teeth with my kind of boss. You think I can brush my teeth? No, I can't. You know what I mean? It's like you just brush your teeth. And same thing, like if you just roll out of bed and start and start going for your daily 40 minute walk because you you're not even sometimes people think, well, it's not mindful, you know, because in the way habits really are not that you want to mindfully shape the habits. So you have the habits you want, but then you kind of want to let mindlessness take over and get you at it. So you don't have to direct your attention. You can be thinking about your important conference call because, you know, you don't have to really argue with yourself about whether you're going to go for that walk today. You're already walking. You really emphasize self-awareness mm -hmm. and a kind of penetrating review of your own life uh, in a very thoughtful way. And then the exercise of choice in various yes. kinds of ways. And that is obviously really valuable. On the other hand, uh, I do wonder about the risks in it of reifying an internal sense of me, myself, and I, of, in other words, supporting that sense of being an, a fixed entity inside, a self that then can often lead to suffering and harm. And so how do people, in your experience, really make use of these approaches without these approaches making use of them? Yes. Now, that's a very big concern. A lot of people really don't like vocabulary or definitions or, or you know, they, they don't like the idea of putting somebody in a box. They say things like, if you define me, you can find me. And I think you're absolutely right that what's important is to use terms, vocabulary, distinctions as a way to get self-insight and to maybe have that kind of shock of recognition that's so satisfying when you're like, oh, I do that. I'm that way. Like mm -hmm. that rings true mm -hmm. for me. But not to feel that it crowds your sense of possibility or mm -hmm. cramps your sense of opportunity or, you know, or, or what you could do. And certainly what you don't want is for people to start saying things like, well, I'm an obliger, so of course you can't expect me to do it. Like mm. it's supposed to be a tool to help you see how to change and grow in the most effective way and therefore the most like successful and exciting and, and energizing way. But I think that you're right that there is always a danger when you start saying you're this, you're that, you don't want to lose that nuance. I guess I'm getting at beyond the structure of the four tendencies to, in psychology, you probably know the term ego strength. So there's uh, an emphasis on discernment, choice, and exercising will. And I, I'm very much that way. I'm willful to a fault, persistent mm -hmm. to a fault. On the other hand, I think there's a p possibility that what starts to happen is people increasingly identify with that kind of top-down view from headquarters. And to use a metaphor, if the psyche is like a vast kingdom or queendom, you know, they get very good at the capital city, but they lose touch with the provinces. And I don't think that's happened for you clearly. And I just kind of wonder how you see people balancing that, how they develop this kind of conscious, deliberate clarity while simultaneously maintaining a lot of acceptance of the totality of who they are. Well, I think you've put your finger on one of the great tensions within happiness, which is on the one hand, you want to accept yourself. And on the other hand, you want to expect more from yourself. Mm. And so where do you accept like, this is who I am. And this is kind of the natural limitations of my, my, my nature, which we all have. And then when do you say, I should not allow myself to be confined by that. I need to push myself. I need to find that I can go beyond what I thought I did. I don't want to be limited by my sense that I can do this, but I can't do that. And I think the problem is, and why this is such a challenge, is that no one can tell you that. 
only you can know what is right for you to accept and what is right for you to push beyond. So something that's a great example is public speaking. Hmm. Many, many, many people are terrified of public speaking. But most people, if they work at it, they get very comfortable with public speaking. But then I think there are some people where it's like, you know what, it would take so much for you to be good at public speaking. You're better off thinking about other things. <laughs> you can let this go and you focus on other things. Sure. But only you can make that decision. And one question I often ask myself when I'm sort of caught between, should I accept myself or expect more for myself is to choose the bigger life. What is the bigger life? Mm. And for some people, they would be like, gosh, if I could get up in front of an audience and talk and feel comfortable, oh my gosh, what that would open up for me. And that would be great. And then you're like, okay, we'll do the things that are going to allow you to do that. Other people, they're like, there is just no future that I can imagine where it would ever cross my, yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, the bigger life for you is to take music lessons and to work on bringing more music into your life. And that's what you need. But nobody can decide for you. It's something that we each have to know for ourselves. Mm. Well, for starters, I think that that's a wonderful note to kind of wrap our conversation on. But at the same time, <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity here to talk more about Outer Order, Inner Calm, which is coming out very soon. So I'm, I'm torn between these two desires inside of myself. So maybe for somebody uh, who would look at their life and they see that they could perhaps use a book titled Outer Order, Inner Calm, which I know yes. many of us could. Could you give the quick synopsis of it? I was able to read an advanced copy of it really quickly. And I found it just for me, at least full, really wall to wall with a lot of very straightforward, actionable tips organized into these kind of, I believe it's five overarching categories of different ways that somebody could either organize their life or, as you say, toward the end, introduce more beauty into it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a book that looks at why is it that outer order contributes to inner calm for most people because mm -hmm. it sort of it sort of seems to matter more than it should. Like, why is it that getting your crowded coat closet under control makes you feel like you can finish your PhD thesis? Mm -hmm. But this happens all the time to people. Certainly to me too. I felt that. Um, and so it's really very concrete. It's meant to give you lots of ideas about if you want to get started, if you want to make progress, if you need help making decisions, if you want ideas for habits that you can follow. If you want to think about yourself, you know, with more clarity and it's written in a very kind of like very concise way because it's supposed to be just like this is just to get you thinking and get you going. It's not a heavy read. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be very like a very clean and simple experience to just really flood you with ideas and suggestions that are going to get you excited about the prospect of, of introducing more outer order to your life, which many, many people crave. Not everybody cares, mm -hmm. for sure. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But for most people, that's something that they really do feel like would make them happier, more focused, more energized, calmer. A lot of people feel better when things are, or are orderly. Yeah, absolutely. I found it extremely boiled down and clear and to a point, which is great because often you can take 10 sentences to say something or you can take three sentences to say something. And this is definitely a, a book that I think in a very good way leans towards taking three sentences to saying the <laughs> important thing. So I think that's really wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you. To kind of play with this a little bit, and I'm definitely an outer order, inner calm kind of person, as Forrest Welt knows, <laughs> and uh, the, I've kind of an internal saying that if I get depressed, I make my bed. In other words, yeah. just do something, anything, somewhere. That's really true. On the other hand, what do you think is the place for creative disorder? You know, the metaphor in Buddhism of the lotus has its roots in the mud. There's a place for the smelly, gooey, disorderly mud. So I wondered, first, what you thought about that as a general topic, and second, if you'd be willing to say, is there a place or a domain in your own life where you deliberately maintain a kind of smelly, disorderly mud that's wonderfully fertile for you? 
Well, in my book, I say, you know, someplace keep an empty shelf, someplace keep a junk drawer. Uh -huh. mm. So I think there's definitely a place for the junk drawer. Um, and I don't think it's like disorder. I don't think it's, it, it's not muddy. I think it's creative juxtaposition or, you know, I don't think there's, there's something negative to it. I think for, even for people who really like, mm -hmm. like seeing things all around and that they find, they find that that spurs their creativity. Usually they don't want random cords from old iPhones there. You know, that is not that, you know, get rid of the stuff you don't need, don't use, don't love. You don't have to put everything away, but get rid of the stuff that's just, just clogging the system, you know, I think for that. But absolutely, some people thrive in something that to somebody else might look incredibly disorderly, mm. but for them works. And so I, I think embrace whatever works for you. In my own life, I'm in a huge note taker. I mean, I take notes. It, it's a huge part of my work process is just literally taking notes on what I read and, so, and, and in all different kinds of categories, some of which turn into books, some of which don't, some of which wouldn't make sense to other people, some of which wouldn't. For me, this, is in, this helps me remember things. I go back and review my notes and I remi I'm remembering things. Sometimes I'll just do random word searches. Like I'll just, like I'll just search for a word like nature mm -hmm. and I'll just see how it pops up, yeah. like kind of a random you know, generator. So for me, that's a way. Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's very orderly because it's like these little passages typed into documents. To me, it seems like just this explosion of ideas that are mm -hmm. not even particularly ordered. And I really find that to be enormously helpful for my creativity. Um, so I think you're 100% right that when people kind of have this false choice where you either have to be totally orderly and everything's right. got to be put in a box and a shelf or everything's just chaotic and you just like, you know, are, are wandering through your basement, you know, with stuff knee deep. It's like there's room for a lot of different things in our lives, but you just want to make sure that it's that it's somehow working for you, that it's not just like some default or some kind of carelessness, but that it's it's set up the way that works for you. But absolutely, I agree that, it, you know, and for many people, what would be comfortable for me might feel very sterile and, and kind of un, uninhabited. I like that. I'm a simplicity lover. But I know many abundance lovers and they want stuff all around. And it's like, that's great because then it's fun for me. I come visit and then I go home to my like my bare office. And so, um, so I think you're exactly right. I think the intersection between what's under control and what's not under control is incredibly mm -hmm. fertile and interesting. And mm -hmm. where we live uh, is right on the edge of open space. We live in a nice, orderly, well-organized suburban development. On the other side of though of our backyard is wild. There are deer mm -hmm. there, there are skunks there, coyotes howl at night. And that intersection between, like I said, what's under control and what's not under control seems really, really rich. And uh, to me, that's something that has really informed my impression of your work, frankly, this really interesting tension, not tension really, intersection between orderliness and, and intellect and, and clarity and this wonderfully playful, creative delight that runs through all everything I've ever read of yours. And so I just wanted to say that. Oh, well, thank you. That's so lovely to hear. I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that's in my work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gretchen, thank you so much for doing this today. We want to be respectful of your time here. And we've, we've hit the end of our allotment with you. But thank you so much for coming on the show and just spending the time with us. Oh, I so enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So to give a quick recap of the episode, today we had the pleasure of speaking with Gretchen Rubin. We started by learning a bit about Gretchen's personal journey and where her interest in the general topic of happiness came from. From there, we spent some time with her four tendencies framework, exploring what each of the tendencies meant and how different tendencies might have different strengths and weaknesses. 
Rick and Gretchen explored the four tendencies in detail, including how we can better relate to our inner tendencies, and work to value and strengthen all the different parts that make up our deep nature. We then went on to discuss Habit Formation and her new book, Outer Order, Inner Calm. If you'd like to purchase her new book, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. In general, Gretchen really emphasized a key point throughout our conversation. Choose the path that works for you. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to happiness. There's a lot of advice out there which might sound pretty absolute, but it's only through understanding our own nature and the tricks that might work for us that we can truly arrive at reliable happiness. Before we go, I'd like to remind you about Rick's monthly meditation program. If you've been listening to this podcast, you probably already know that regular meditation and practice can improve your physical and mental health and help you grow resilience and lasting happiness. But life is busier than ever these days, and it can be challenging to fit regular practice into your daily routine. Rick's new Growing the Good monthly meditation program starts this month, but registration will remain open, and you'll always receive access to any previous content. It includes a live guided meditation and Q&A each month, meditation downloads, weekly encouragement and inspiration, practical applications for daily life, and lifetime access to all recordings. We also have a special offer for podcast listeners. If you sign up now, you can save 10% if you enter the coupon code BEINGWELL at checkout. You can follow the link in the description of this episode to access the program. I hope you love it. We hope you'll join us again next week when we'll be back with another episode in our series on Who Am I? Until then, thanks for listening. 